Welcome to This Academic Life, episode 31. This episode is sponsored by DeGrider and its portfolio in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. For students and researchers in mathematics, DeGrider's 2022 catalog is now available at thisacademiclife.org. If you're interested in being a sponsor, then please contact us at sponsor at thisacademiclife.org. Hi, my name is Pani Anuel. I'm a professor in mechanical engineering. Hi, I'm Lucy Zhang. I'm a professor of mechanical engineering. Hi, my name is Kim Michelle Lewis. I'm a professor of physics and associate dean of research. Today, we are going to discuss about grants management for faculty PIs. The information provided in this podcast is based on personal experience and should not supersede the OMB Uniform Guidance for Grants and Contract Agreements and any policies and guidelines provided by your grants administration office at your college or university. This segment is to discuss three major topics, maybe four, that tend to come up from faculty PIs. Course buyout, summer salary, overspending, and possibly we'll discuss indirect cost recovery. So the first topic is course buyout. And so I want to start with Lucy to discuss the topic of course buyout. Thank you, Kim. This is actually a very interesting. I had always been very curious of how course buyout works because I've actually never done it myself. Just in general, if you were to buy out a course, where does the money go? Does it go to the department? to hire someone to teach that course? Or are you buying it out for you to not teach that course at all? I'm just very confused. (laughs) Yeah, Lucy, so that was a great question. And it's a fun one because it's all of the above. So (laughs) you are buying out the course to pay another person to teach that course. So the money does go to the department to pay the person who's going to teach the course. And it buys you out of teaching that course. So fall semester, you have a course, air quotes, buyout. Then that means your department chair, he or she would have hired maybe an adjunct or a lecturer of some sort to teach that course. So the funds that you wrote in your proposal would then be distributed to pay that person and your time would be charged against the grant. So whatever that percent effort was that you would lose by not teaching that course. So effectively that money that the department gets from the buyout amount should be sufficient enough to pay an adjunct, for example, to cover the course, and perhaps with a little bit bonus on the side so that the department is not losing out as a result. Am I right? Something like that. I wouldn't necessarily say the department gets a bonus. So yes. So they will just get the money that it would cost to pay that adjunct lecturer to teach the class. And I think I'm safe to say no more, no less. I'm still confused. 
because the department has the money to pay me to teach the class at the first place. So they can shift that one, give it to somebody else. Why? I don't understand why the money that I buy out the course goes to that person. What happens to the original money that was there to pay my salary or cover partially some of my teaching salary? Good point. So, okay. So think of it this way. It could kind of work both ways. So let me see if I can break it down clear. You can write it into your proposal two ways. Let's do it that way. One way is just to say, I'm going to charge 25% of my effort during the semester to buy out teaching for that semester. So let's just say it's 25%, right? 25% of your nine month salary. Then that means 25% of your salary will be charged to that grant. So effectively your department has now gained 25%. However much it costs to hire an adjunct a lecturer plus his or her fringe benefits would come from your 25% and whatever they're recovering from the fringe benefits, etc. So that's one way. So you're right, Panya. The money that was covering your salary goes back to your department to pay the adjunct or the lecturer their money plus the fringe benefits. Another way is you could just write in that an adjunct or a lecturer into the grant as personnel. And then you would just use X amount of dollars from your grant because it's a line item now in your budget plus the fringe benefits to pay that adjunct or lecturer. And guess what? That means that adjunct or lecturer will be charged against your grant. So that's, in my experience, the two cleanest ways to do it. I see. Okay, thank you. That makes sense. So I have one more question now. I've been told, as I'm a junior faculty among all three of us, that as a junior faculty, it has a negative impact before being tenured that you go for a course buyout. Is that true? Not necessarily. You typically, you're rewarded for bringing in money into the department. And so as a benefit, your department tends to want to reduce your teaching load so that you can focus on being productive in the research component. So I wouldn't necessarily say that it's a negative. However, what some people could think is that now you have less teaching. There's a fewer number of courses they can evaluate you on when you go up for tenure. So maybe that's their line of thinking. So for you as a junior faculty, you would have to balance that out. You would have to weigh how many typically you would talk to either your mentor in your department or your department chair and say, what would be a sufficient number of courses that I should teach? Should it be a variety of, can it be the same number of same course to get an idea of if you should actually buy out the course or if you should actually teach the course for consistency of evaluations for going up a tenure. That's an excellent question. So sometimes you have to probe your faculty a little more because sometimes they have a reason and they just don't really put the thought together to explicitly state why they're thinking that. Yeah, and also I'm thinking because most places for junior faculty, they already have a reduced teaching load. 
So it's already reduced. So if you were to buy out more of your reduced teaching load, that probably will be viewed as a negative thing because what Kim was just mentioned, you just don't have sufficient amount of data points to be evaluated when you go up for tenure. Great. And if I can just make maybe one more point before we move on is that it is extremely important for you to talk to your department chair and your dean before you write in your proposal that you're going to have a course buyout. It is very important. So don't write your proposal and you're doing your budgeting, your budget justification, and you're all excited that you have enough funds to write in your course buyout. But then guess what? From an administrative level, we have to plan. Panya is going to be out fall 2023. And then we get your proposal. You win the award. You get your NSF career. And then I look at it as a dean and like, um, did somebody prepare for her not to be teaching for fall 2023? It's a last minute thing. And everybody's shuffling around from an administrative point of view to try to find somebody to teach your class. So the best thing you could do is when you're, you're preparing to do your budget and your budget justification for your award, NSF, DOD, NIH, etc., is to just go to your department chair and say, hey, I'm writing this proposal. Is it possible you would approve a course buyout? And then guess what? You should get it in writing. You should do a little memo to your department that goes through to the dean saying, if awarded this grant, we've agreed to either teach a reduction in teaching or a course buyout for these semesters. And then you can just include it in your internal documents for submitting the proposal. Or if it's something that your department chair may want to write in the letter of recommendation or collaboration letter or whatever, it could be seen as a plus because that's one way that the university is supporting your research efforts if you're awarded this. That's great, Kim. So that actually answered another question of mine, because I was thinking for people who have continuous grants, they have large center grants, they always have sufficient amount to buy themselves out. But I doubt the administration would continuously allow them to buy out and never teach. I think that level of communication is not something that's decided by the PI themselves. That's really important. So the next topic that is discussed a lot when it comes to grants management and faculty PIs is summer salary. It's also a mysterious thing. Everybody wants to write it in, but then no one understands how it really works. So do you guys have any questions about summer salary when you write that into your grant, etc.? I have a question about when you budget it, how do you even decide how much you need to put for your summer salary? So that's a good question. One, it could depend on each grant may have a minimum amount. Sometimes you just can't write zero. You have to have a minimum amount. And so that would be in the solicitation of the guidelines. Two, it depends on if you have other grants that pay you summer salary. Because the maximum amount that you can get at most universities is three ninths of your salary. So three months of your salary, you can get back during the summer. So nine plus three is 12. Some proposals or some agencies will only allow you to do a maximum of two months, two of the three months. So it could depends on that. So maybe you do 
50% of your summer on one grant and then 50% of your summer on another grant or some combination to give you three full months. So that's one way you could kind of think about it. In some cases, my summer salary was determined by how much money I was allowed to spend in a given year. Some agencies have a cap. You can only do 100K per year or 150K per year, or they might say you can't with over the three years, you can't go over a certain amount. So sometimes paying myself, yes, I'm going to say it out loud, is usually the last thing I think about. So then after I've made sure my graduate student is covered, my postdoc is covered, my materials and supplies, my conferences, etc., right, is paid, then I go back and pay myself. And I'm like, oh, I only have $5 left. <laughs> or, or I only have 10K left or something. And then I basically reverse engineer and say, okay, with this 10K, how much of my effort can I charge to the grant? So sometimes you have to do that. And that's typically what I do. I pay everybody else, make sure the research is successful. And then I go back and pay myself. I'm not going to call that a best practice, but I've seen many of my colleagues just do it that way because sometimes the funding amount is really low. On the practical matter, I mean, that's exactly what you're saying. You cannot obviously over budget your summer and you only have three months of summer. And I mean, in reality, we're all doing research, say on this particular project that I'm charging, say half a month for. Effectively, I'm working all year long for it, right? What's the meaning of really doing this two weeks of summer? Is that like a little bonus of showing effort? Logistically, how does that work? I think it's just a commitment that the funding agency wants to ensure that they know that our first priority is to the students and to the service to the department and your nine months of salary is covered. And some universities may not require you to do as much research as other universities. And so I think they want to ensure that the university understands that they've made a commitment to you by giving you this money. And they in turn need a commitment from the university and you to say, I'm really going to work on this during the summer because that's when I do have three months of air quotes, free time versus during the academic year where I may have a heavy teaching load and may not have time to commit to the research. So I think it's just a way to commit to another form of an agreement between the university yourself and the funding agency. So what would happen if all our proposal that we are submitting, they get funded and we now have six months of summer salary? Yeah, great questions. Of course, faculty will push the envelope and they will try to get six months of summer salary. And I'm like, mm-mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. And so typically what happens seriously is you have to pick and choose. Sometimes faculty will just divvy it up. If I have three sources of funding, then I'll just do one third, one third. So I'll do a one month on each grant. Some will contact the sponsor and say, is it okay for me to shift these funds to another summer, for example. But typically, personally, I would encourage my PIs not to do that. If they at all can take effort for the summer in for that particular grant and not to contact the sponsor and say, hey, can I shift this 
to another summer unless there's some reason like personal or emergency or they got a fellowship that causes them to do 100% effort on that. So then I would say contact the, the sponsor, but in most cases I would recommend not to put zero. So let's move to the third topic and that is overspending on your grant. So this is an interesting one. So I'm open to questions from either Lucy or Panya. Well, I can tell you my own personal experience of overspending. And it was purely by accident. I think it was, I must have overcharged by some amount, maybe a few hundred dollars or whatever it is. I don't remember. It wasn't significant. And I was told to pay back. At the end of the budget year, they said, you overspend, you have to pay us back. You can pay it through this or this and this. And I did. So that's sort of the consequence of me not really, it wasn't even, <laughs> to be honest, it wasn't even my fault. <laughs> I was told that I had that amount to charge. I have that amount to uh, left and I want to spend it down to zero, right? Who wants to return money back? So I wanted to spend it down and I said, okay, charge it all. And obviously I did overspend. I had to return it. So I don't know if it's typical. I wish someone could really oversee it at some level. Maybe someone did, but maybe it was such a, everything happened in such a short period of time that they didn't have time to kind of inform me that, oh, this charge cannot go through because it's be negative. So I'm not really sure. I'm so confused in this regard. So I'm hoping that there's always some Andrew over there watching over my grants. So I'm not overspending again. You know, there are so many different universities do different things to manage the grants for the faculty. I've been in, at some universities where at the end of every month, they will send you all of the expenditures on your grant so that you can look over charges, make sure that another professor student is not charged on your grant and you can reverse engineer or calculate roughly how much you should have it as an, as an available balance. So I've seen some universities do that. I've seen universities that provide a dashboard that's available to the faculty where they can go in and type in their internal grant number for that particular sponsor, it pulls up and it'll show you salary and wages charges or fringe benefits or the remaining balancing your supplies and materials or any equipment. So those are some ways that I've seen universities help faculty members manage. For the large center grants, $5 million, multi-million dollars, they typically hire their own grants management person. And then that person works with the grants and accountant team to make sure all of the charges are where they need to be. And usually I always encourage faculty, if they're going to write a multi-million dollar grant, then they need to write in a finance manager or a grants manager, or even a program manager to just monitor personnel, et cetera. So I think it's beneficial to do that if you have large grants. So my question is, no one's perfect. And then the PI can do their due diligence on checking constantly. And if you just miss one, then like me, I paid it back. If a finance person, a manager manages the money, was not careful about it and accidentally overcharged, 
then that manager doesn't have to pay it back out of his or her pocket, right? Because he or she doesn't have an account, right? Like a funding <laughs> source. I guess my question is, if it does happen for whatever reason, and it's a huge amount. So mine was, okay, a few hundred dollars. It's okay. So I, I survived. But if it's a huge amount, I'd say more than $10,000 or something, who pays that cost? <laughs> and you can't go back to your sponsor and say, oh, we accidentally overspend. Can you pay us cover the rest? You can't say that. They're not going to give it to you. Then what happens? Yeah, it's really tricky. I think that's definitely a very rare situation. I don't know what happened. If I had to guess some of the possibilities, one could be that the university eats the costs. When they think about it, they may say, well, Lucy is the award that Lucy received was made to the university, not to Lucy as an individual. So then sometimes the university could eat that cost. And if you drill down, it's not really the university. It could be your dean or it could be your department. It could be taken from your departmental annual budget. So at the end of the day, it really impacts your department or your dean or the university. And so you should try to do as much as you can to not do that. So I will talk very quickly about the last topic and that's indirect cost recovery. And I think in preparation for this show, this was one of those last minute topics that I thought about. And when I mentioned it to Lucy and Panya, they had really no idea what I was talking about. And I was like, oh, I'm not sure if this is good or bad. <laughs> so, but I, I felt that it's important to talk about. So indirect cost recovery is pretty much a part of that FNA, the FNA charges that you typically see that's charged at universities and that money, some percentage of that money is returned back to the faculty PI. It's some percentage of it is returned back to the college. Some percentage is returned to the department and some percentage could be returned to the office of research. And what's nice about this indirect cost recovery account is that you can use it to fund things that a sponsor would not typically fund. So let's just say you needed software and software is not covered by your grant. You can use your indirect cost recovery fund to buy that software. Or if you wanted to get a piece of equipment and maybe it wasn't an equipment grant you wrote or they only allowed equipment over $5,000 and you only needed something that was $2,500. If you have enough money in your indirect cost recovery, you can use it to do that. You can use it to pay a student to kind of supplement a student stipend or something like that. So the indirect cost recovery fund typically given on an annual basis and it's based on the amount of expenditures. So if you didn't spend nothing that year, then there's no percentage to take from, right? And then you typically have a deadline. So when you're given the fund account, it doesn't roll. Some schools allow you to roll it over or roll over some percentage, but you typically have to use it within a certain time frame. Oh, I didn't know that. Maybe as you 
I thought that there is no expiration. It's just, you just accumulate it and it rolls over, but maybe I, I should check. Uh, <laughs> so how do we find out what's that percentage? I never get, like I see the money in that account, but I don't know how it's been calculated and how much I paid and how much it's like a tax refund to me. <laughs> so it's a tax season too. And Lucy would love that discussion. <laughs> so, but yeah, I do understand the percentage and where we can get this information from. Yeah, so typically your office of research would have it or your grants management research office would have it. Sometimes it's even written on their website. It's very rare, but sometimes they would have it there. And I think sometimes if it's not written in a very public place, it's because it's often the percentage may change because it's, it's not mandatory that get this money. Something could happen financially with the university and they might have to decide not to give out these funds. So different things could happen. So sometimes it's, it's just not posted, but you can always ask. So it's not a secret. If you ask, they will tell. And it's, it's not a problem for you to ask that question. And also my own experience tells me also find out when that expiration date, if there is one, like what exactly, what month of the year it happens and on what date. Yeah, good point. Well, guys, I hope you found the information in this segment useful. Please use best practices, which include following the guidelines from your research office on your campus or university and the OMB Uniform Guidance for Grants and Contract Agreements. We will put the link to the Uniform Guidance in our show notes. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this conversation. This episode is sponsored by DeGrider and its portfolio in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. For students and researchers in mathematics, DeGrider's 2022 catalog is now available at thisacademiclife.org. You can follow us on Facebook and listen to our latest episodes on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Music, or Google Podcasts. If you're interested in being a sponsor, then please contact us at sponsor at thisacademiclife.org. Join us next time for the good, the bad, and the ugly of this academic life. <laughs>